Welcome back to the Sunday show on this bank holiday weekend. I'm Sarah Carey. I'm with you until 12 and I'm here this week and next week. Now, lone wolves, as they are being labelled by the media, are carrying out gruesome murders in Europe from Normandy to Nice in apparent support of ISIS. And people have been wondering how young men can turn into terrorists even though they don't live in a war zone. Orla Lynch is a lecturer in criminology in University College Cork and she's author of the book Terrorism and Psychological Processes. She joins me now. Orla, why are these young men, and they are men, turning into terrorists? I mean, this week has given us an awful lot to think about. But when we think about why people carry out an attack, such as Nice or Orlando, or even going back to the London bombings, we have to bear in mind that why anybody does anything at all is a very, very difficult question to answer So if we were to think about normal crime, for example, severe interpersonal violence, we'll never know an individual's true motivation. Uh, We can ask them, we can ask them after the fact, and they usually have constructed a coherent story as to why, but it's a complicated story and it differs from person to person. So given that it's very, very difficult to know exactly why people might do what they do, we need to consider what's important when we're thinking about terrorism. One of the outcomes from this upswing in violence over the last few days is that people really are searching for that reason. They're searching for an attempt to understand um, an understanding of why, as you said, why men might actually do this. And it's unfortunate that over the past few days and weeks, the new favoured explanation for those who might what we call self-radicalise and then commit acts of violence on behalf of a, some global jihad, the reasons tend to be that, oh, they're unstable, they're, they're at the end of their rope, they're social misfits, they're on the fringes of society, or they're looking for a cause to die for. So all of these themes have come up again and again. And I think the thing to bear in mind is that for every attacker who is a social dropout, there's going to be somebody popular like Tarnasev, one of the Boston Marathon bombers. And for every person who's at the fringes of societies, there's going to be the doctors and the engineers. There's going to be those successful professionals. And for every disenfranchised, poverty-stricken individual, there'll be the elites like who did on 9-11 carry out that attack. So far from being deranged, in most cases, these attackers, they can clearly explain the rationale for choosing their violence. And that's a very frightening thing to think about, that normal people can do this violence. But that is the reality of the situation we're dealing with. And is the rationale they provide a religious one? That this is not about being poor, because as you say, the 911 bombers were quite well off. The common thread here is Islam. To say that it's Islam is an element of the story. To say it's absolutely not Islam is problematic as well. But in terms of if we were to say what is the role of ideology and religion, Oftentimes, it's a justification after the fact. So if you look at, for example, going back to the days of the provisional IRA, a lot of the time people learned their ideology after they'd committed violence. So they learned their ideology in prison. And that's not uncommon. People don't have to be radicalized to carry out violence. There's lots and lots of different reasons. I mean, blind religious adherence is normally not the case in these instances. Often we hear um, that people weren't religiously active prior to carrying out the violence that they may have, in the case of of Islam, they may have drank, they may not have prayed, etc, etc. So there is an element of ideology being a retrospective justification. But it's again, it's a unique kind of idiosyncratic case for each individual. So what's your explanation then? We can all see maybe something in the disaffected, poor Muslim youth in a Western country who hasn't properly been integrated. But when you've got the well-off Saudis doing it too, what do you think is the rationale? I think 
one of the big things we have to think about is we have to separate out this idea of terrorism as this massive, big political phenomenon. And we have to think about the terrorist, if we don't want to use that word, the political actor. We have to separate those out because terrorism is the sensational, the big political issue, the 24-hour news cycle. It's the announcements of politicians. It's the immigration debates. And we need to separate out the rhetoric that exists around that big political idea and try to think about the details of who these individuals are, trying to understand the individual factors and, and the group factors and the details of those dynamics. That's where the answers are. Because terrorism has really become this global issue, a strategic threat, a moral threat, an existential threat, so meaning that it's, it's really a threat to our, to our way of life, to our existence, we need to be more objective and informed. And there is an awful lot of research out there on radicalization, on terrorism, on political violence, and we really need to focus and look at what's being said there. Um, and if you look, just to give an example of why people do this and what the explanations are, if you look at why people join political groups, a significant issue is personal history. So having a friend or a family member that joined before you, that's a significant factor. Also, another issue, of course, is opportunity. If you're a witness to a conflict, if you're a victim of a conflict, if you've experienced violence, you have the opportunity to join. Now, one complex factor there, of course, is social media. Is social media creating the opportunity to join? But those two factors are a big, big part of the story of why people get involved. So that's opportunity and peer networks. And we know that that's the case. And, and a very interesting study done by a colleague in the UK looks at how we might identify people who are going to get involved. And one of the most successful strategies for doing that is friends and family. These people always tell somebody. Somebody always knows. And there's, there's a lot of work carried out in the, in the USA at the moment, creating a situation where people can inform, get information about how to help an individual who they think is in danger of being radicalized. So are you saying that, let's take the Orlando situation, mm -hmm. because that looked like a guy who was gay. And uh, I think what they'd say is he was an internalized homophobe, didn't want to be gay, was part of a religion that was heavily homophobic. And ISIS became a proxy by which he could deal with that in some form or other. So are you saying that each of these individuals comes to the situation with some form of baggage and then they can latch on to this death cult version of Islam in order to rationalize how they feel? I think I think we all come with baggage, but perhaps if, if we were to take that approach, what we, we end up doing is simplifying it. So it would be nice if it was people who had baggage, had issues, and then seized on ISIS's ideology. But an interesting study in Germany demonstrated that people who went to Syria as foreign fighters, yeah. they were more likely to be recruited through social networks. So this wasn't a case of an isolated loner carrying out. And I think one of the problems we have is that this term lone wolf mm -hmm. or lone actor has become really, really prominent. And it gives a kind of false impression of what we're dealing with. Now, we do know that if we call them lone actors... We talk about them being inspired by ISIS, but that's that term is probably responsible for a lot of the confusion around this issue. It's generally agreed that, yes, a lone actor can be inspired, but it doesn't mean that they're isolated. It doesn't mean that they're on their own and it doesn't mean that they don't have any connections. In research, when we talk about lone wolves, we talk usually about kind of groups of, of up to two or three people. So I think that's a problem we have when we're thinking about um, these terrorist actors because they're not that isolated individual that is sometimes portrayed in the media. And the other thing to bear in mind as well is that the minute an attack happens, like in, like in Orlando or in Nice, we're doing what's called a psychological autopsy. So we're in a frantic panic to look at every detail of their life to try and understand why 
they chose the path that they chose. And, you know, while that information may be interesting and may may give us a bigger picture, it doesn't give us a causal factor. So are you, so you're more concerned with then the process of radicalisation, that it doesn't matter maybe why you came to the table, but how you step up and go through each form of the process right up until the point where you're carrying out a suicide bombing and that social media is a key factor there. So how do you police that? How can What can intelligence services do to see it coming? The point you make is absolutely the case. If we were to ask why, we'll get a range of different answers. If we were to ask how, how yeah. do they do this? We'll know an awful lot more by looking at that. If we If we were to say that there's stages to this, and we can then think about, and I'm not saying that there's a conveyor belt of radicalization or any set pathway, but if you're to say, right, let's think about the process by which somebody goes from non-violent, non-radical to somebody who's ready to get involved in violent activity. There's key points in there that we can focus on. Now, police and security services have an absolutely very, very difficult job. And the counterterrorism literature or also what's called countering violent extremism literature focuses not so much on the opportunities for uh, law enforcement, but they're looking at preventative opportunities in the community. And they're looking at training community leaders, training youth workers, etc., to recognize what might be problematic steps, because they're the people that will spot the changes. They're the people that will understand that something has altered that the social network has altered, that the peer groups have changed, etc. And so that's where the focus um, really is increasingly attended to. Now, and does that mean that also there should be an increased monitoring and perhaps restriction of activities of these Wahhabist radical mosques that are being funded all around the world from Saudi Arabia that are driving this radicalisation? Is it time to go into those places and start looking at what they're doing and, if necessary, stop what they're doing? Well, I think that's a very complicated story. And, I mean, if you look at, if you were to talk about, for example, Salafi Muslims in London, Salafi Muslims were highly active in preventing radicalization in their communities. So I think there's a a great diversity in them when you're talking about the different branches of Islam. But I think the other thing to bear in mind is that the people we're talking about in in the most recent attacks, Mm -hmm. they didn't attend mosques. Right. So, and if you look back to kind of the London bombings, those individuals weren't involved in the mainstream mosques. They were involved in, in the mosques that were in people's houses, in, in the backs of shops. So we're not really talking about, you know, the visible kind of religious practice of Muslims. This is this is a real fringe um, activity. So I think going after any kind of mainstream religious institution is probably not where we need to be looking at. So, So just to go back over then, what you're saying is... You need community people monitoring people in their own area and you need you want to be monitoring social media. Is that what you're saying? I think monitoring social media is a very difficult thing to do. There's an awful lot of software out there that does that already. But the difference is that monitoring social media might throw up all kinds of problems, but that doesn't mean people will act on what they've said online. Mm. Um, in terms of monitoring communities, one thing we have to bear in mind here, this is not the Muslim community's problem. They do not have the answers to this problem. This is a fringe phenomenon. Yeah, but is that like, say, in Northern Ireland, Mm -hmm. where people knew who was in the IRA and everybody knew where the safe house was? Mm -hmm. Now, they weren't providing the safe house, but they weren't going to tell the police where the safe house was, partly out of snake and regarder attitudes, you know, that they actually did support on some base level what the so-called war was about, and partly out of fear. 
You know, but there was a moral responsibility on people during the Troubles to actually step up and help fight that fight themselves. Surely we shouldn't be afraid of saying to Muslims, you know what, if you do know what's going on, you do have a responsibility to let the rest of us know about it. And I think that's a fair point if people do know what's going on. We have to bear in mind that Northern Ireland was a very specific context. It was a closed context. It was a very particular, you know, a set of communities. There is no person that is a recruiter that everybody knows. There is no hierarchy that all the Muslims know about. This is not something that people are aware of. Mm. So saying to people, oh, you must step up and tell us, they don't know. 99% of the Muslim community, if not more, don't understand this, the same as the rest of us don't understand it. So I think pushing this responsibility onto a community when they don't have the answers is very problematic. What we need to think about is we need to think about the at-risk individuals. So we're not tarnishing everybody with the same brush. We're looking to target the people that may be at risk. And what we want to do is give people the tools so that they can understand what might be problematic. And there's a lot of work going on around um, the role of women and the role of mothers in this and perhaps giving them the opportunity or the tools to have conversations around these issues. You know, going in heavy-handed with a securitized agenda really doesn't do us any favours. I've been talking a lot recently, I'm becoming a bore on the subject of identity Mm -hmm. and how in a society, particular identities start to matter. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, uh, Muslim identity matters now when you live in a Western society. Um, What do you think of multiculturalism and the idea that uh, something like the Muslim identity and and culture has to be respected, for example, via the wearing of the veil. Um, Do you think we need to continue on that road or do you think we need to be saying to Muslim communities, no, you're joining a Western society, you need to adopt more what we shall call Western style practices? Well, if you think about, if we were to talk about Islam in Ireland, if you were to ask anybody, what is Irishness? Everybody will have a different answer for you. If you ask young Muslims who are born in Ireland, what's Irishness? They'll have an answer for you. They see themselves as Irish. In the same way, if you ask a Christian, well, how does Christianity contribute to your Irishness? They'll have an answer. Muslim all, Muslim uh, or Islam also contributes to their sense of Irishness. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of a fantasy to talk about one particular type of identity. Is Scottish identity British identity? Is Northern Irish identity British identity? So what we're doing is we're creating a very simple debate whereby identities are put into categories, distinct, unchangeable categories, and that's not the reality of things. Um, if we're getting into a situation where religious symbolism is not going to be allowed and that's a very very problematic situation and we have our own history around religious identity that's quite problematic but what we tend to do is we exceptionalize islam because it's so problematic and so politicized currently and i think if we if we actually think about identity if we think about multiculturalism these are very different arguments these are not causal issues for terrorism and we really need to step back and think you know think more practically you know, root our ideas in in evidence and really not go down that road of exceptionalism and extreme thinking. Orla Lynch, thanks a million. That's Orla Lynch. She's a lecturer in criminology at UCC and author of the book Terrorism and Psychological Processes. So we're coming to a break now. And after that, I'll be talking to Karen Devine about the Democratic National Convention and the nomination of Hillary Clinton.